Amen. Well, let's open up our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 3. And as you're opening your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 3, we're actually returning to the kings of Israel and Judah. Last week we were talking about the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And as we saw last week, we saw that Elijah went up to heaven, he ascended into heaven, and Elisha was now the successor. He was now the prophet that God would use and speak and correct and rebuke many of the kings that were here. And so we're going to see how these two kings, how they react to a battle that's before them and also as they hear the words of Elisha. And so let's go ahead and just start reading and we'll expound on the verses as we, as we come to them verse by verse. So beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. Let's stop here. Let's just go ahead and, and talk about this. That way we know who we're talking about. That way we understand what's going on here. We're introduced now to the king of Israel. His name is Jehoram. Jehoram. And as we look at King Jehoram, we're given the insights now by the writer of Second Kings. And he tells us that he's the son of Ahab. That's the first thing he tells us. And he also tells us that he is the king of Israel. And he became king during the 18th year of King Jehoshaphat. And so Ahab, remember this, Ahab was a very wicked king and, and he was a very evil king. He was the one that was married to Jezebel. And so Jehoram, as we are told, he's now king. He's the son of Ahab, but he was not actually the, the king that, uh, the eldest of Ahab, because the eldest of Ahab was King Ahaziah. And he was actually the one that took the throne after King Ahab's death, but he only lasted two years. And because King Ahaziah had no children, this is the reason why Jehoram becomes king. And so he's king over the northern kingdom. He's king over Israel. And just to remind you quickly is that the kingdom was actually divided. Remember, Israel was one nation, but they actually divided into two. They had the northern kingdom and they had the southern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom was Israel and the southern kingdom was Judah. And so Jehoram was actually the king over the northern kingdom. And it says that he reigned in the 18th year of King Jehoshaphat, who was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And so in verse 2, as we're now looking at these details, it says, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Okay, so we see here additional details of Jehoram. Okay, it tells us that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not to the extent of his father, King Ahab. Okay, and so he didn't do it to the extent. Why? He mentions here that he had taken down the sacred pillar that was made to Baal. And so this was made by Ahab. And so, so we know that he did not you know, offer or he took down that pillar and, and so 
as he says, as the Lord says, he didn't do as evil or he didn't do, I shouldn't say as evil, he just, the extent of his evil was not like his father. But he still continued in worship, in idol worship, because he mentions there King Jeroboam. And when the nation of Israel split into the northern and southern kingdom, King Solomon's son became king over the south and Jeroboam became king over the north. And one of the things that Jeroboam did is that he actually made golden calves like the ones that Aaron made. Remember when Moses was up in the mountain and the golden calves were made and he made the people worship? Well, that's exactly what Jeroboam did. And so he says that here that he, I guess, continued in the calf worship. And as we see here, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because, again, he didn't point the people to God. The problem, the issue was that he wasn't pointing people to God. He wasn't directing people to God. See, that's our responsibility as, as leaders. My responsibility is to always point you to the Lord. I never point you to anyone here. We point you to the Lord because He's the one that deserves our worship. He's the one that can help. He's the one that can do all things. We don't have the power of God. Only He does. And then as we see here in verse 4, it says, Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Now we're introduced to another king, and bear with me with all these facts and all these kings. We're going to get into very important lessons, but before we do that, we have all these facts that the Bible gives us. And so to understand what's going on, that's why I'm elaborating here for all of us. So we see here now there's a king of Moab, and his name is Misha. And Misha was, or I should say the king of, or the Moabites were subject to Israel. Okay? And how were they subject to Israel? They paid a yearly tribute of 100,000 lambs. Imagine that, 100,000 lambs. They were given to Israel every year. And he, not only did he give them 100,000 lambs, but he also gave them the wool of 100,000, from 100,000 rams. So you can imagine, this was a heavy tribute. This was a lot for Israel. And they were subject to Israel, but all of a sudden they decide to rebel. They say, you know what, no more. We're not doing this anymore. They thought, or they looked at the kings, the sons of King Ahab, and they looked at them as much weaker than their father. Because this is not where the rebellion started. Because when we look at 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1, when King Ahaziah, the eldest son of King Ahab, was king, it tells us that the rebellion started back then. So we see here that King Ahaziah did nothing of it, but here we see Jehoram is going to do something about it. And what, what's he going to do? Look at what it says in verse 6. It says, So King Jehoram went out of Samaria at the time and mustered all Israel. Then he went and sent, Jehosh sent to Jehoshaphat king of, it, of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? Okay? So we see here, King Jeho uh, Jehoram doesn't want to give up the tribute. He's saying, you know what? I want these guys to be under us. 
I want them to be subject to us and I still want to receive the tribute. And so what does he do? The only way to bring that back, right, is he needs to battle against Moab. He needs to conquer them again, right? He needs to make sure that he has victory over them. And so on his way to battle, the king of Moab, he sends word to King Jehoshaphat. So here we have the king of Judah. And what he asks of King Jehoshaphat, he says, will you help me? You know what? I need help. I need help to fight against Moab. And are you go- can you help me? And so the king of Judah, remember, they, it was a divided nation. But the king of Judah says, you know what? I'm going to go with you. I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horses. What he does here is he's done this previously and he did this also with King Ahab. See, when King Ahab was about to battle the king of Syria, when he was about to battle the king of Syria, what he did is he sends a message to Jehoshaphat and he asked him for help. And this was in Second Chronicles 18 verse 3. And Jehoshaphat responded the same way. But remember, King Ahab was an evil king and the Lord... Even though the Lord was gracious to him and merciful to him, and many times he reached out to King Ahab, but Ahab never turned from his evil ways. But the Lord even rebuked King Jehoshaphat for joining King Ahab in Second Chronicles 19.2. He rebukes him. So as we look at this, why would a good king like King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, why would he help an evil king? The reason he helped them was because his son was married to King Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. See, in, when we look at Second Chronicles 19-2, it tells us that they were, that, he, that his son was married to their daughter. And so, as they were in-laws... Right? He felt obligated to help his in-laws. I mean, this is again his son's wife. And so he felt obligated to do this. And so he, he felt obligated to go and help them. And as he did with King Ahab, he does that with his son here, Jehoram. Jehoram. And so as we keep reading in verse 8, it goes on to say that then he said, which way shall we go? And he answered by way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom and they marched on that roundabout route seven days and there was no water for the army nor for the animals that followed them. So as King Jehoshaphat agrees, he says to King Jehoram, the king of Israel, he says, which way are we going to go? I'm going with you. I'm all with you. So which way are we going to go? Which way are we going to go and, and fight against the king of, of Moab? And he responds by the way of the wilderness of Edom. And the reason why, as we see this, there's a reason for this. I mean, it's not as if, as if uh, he just decided to do this. Were we able to get that map up? Here, let me, let me give you a map here. Okay, it's not. Can you read it? Barely? (laughs) 
All right, let me share this with you. Okay, we have the kingdom of Israel right up here. And then we have the kingdom of Judah right here. Then you have the kingdom of Edom right here. And then you have the kingdom of Moab right here. And then you have the kingdom of the Ammonites over there. So, if Israel, this is the easy way, just go here and conquer. But the problem was that the Ammonites were an enemy of Israel. And so if they went this way, they would have to fight the Ammonites. And then they were fortified, the Moabites were fortified there. So, of course, that's going to be very difficult. So what they want to do, remember Judah, as he asked for help, they agreed. So they could come this way, and then Edom was subject to Judah. So what they, when, when he asked Judah if he would help him, Judah agreed. And knowing that, there we go, and knowing that Edom is actually subject to Judah, Judah that Edom would help them. So you have these three nations that are going to come this way and conquer Moab. Okay, so you have these three here. You have these three nations going this way. This is going to be a lot longer and it's going to be a lot more difficult. But they figured, you know what, we'll get enough men, we'll get enough soldiers, we'll have these three kings. And so it's going to take them like seven days to do this. The problem as we read here is that there was no more water. They ran out of water. See, it was a long journey, and being in that long journey, they ran out of water. And so they had no water for the soldiers as well as for the animals. Why did they take animals? Remember, it's a seven-day journey. They're going to be hungry. What are they going to eat? So they needed to take animals. They took cattle in order that they would have food so that they can eat. And so, as we get all this background information, now comes the lessons that God wants us to know. The things that he wants us to teach. And it begins here in verse 10. It says, And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So the king of Israel, Jehoram, with a lack of water, he says, We're doomed. That's it. We're going to die. We have no strength, no vitality to fight if there's no water. And he's absolutely right. So he said, the Lord has brought us to be defeated by Moab. And what's crazy about all of this is, remember this, is that Jehoram wanted nothing to do with God. Remember, he had the calves of Jeroboam. He had all these other idols that he was worshipping. But now he comes to God and he begins to blame God. Think about that. How many of you know people like this? Think about this, right? They want nothing to do with God. You've shared the gospel with them and all of a sudden there's a tragedy that hits and who are they blaming? They blame God, right? This is the way people are. And so this is what we see here, right? We see that he's quick to acknowledge God now, now that he's in a problem, but he's also quick to blame God. And so look at verse 11. So what happens next is, but Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elijah, the son of Shaphat is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. 
What we see here is we have a more spiritual one. Remember, Jehoshaphat was a good king. He was a, a man of faith. Even though he al- aligned himself with these kings that wanted nothing to do with God. And we know that you know, being unequally yoked brings hardship and it brings pain and it brings rebuke from the Lord. Remember, the Lord doesn't want us unequally yoked. And so, but King Jehoshaphat, even the Lord says, hey, because you did all these other good things, as he said before, you know what? I'm still with you. I still, you know what? I'm still here for you. And so King Jehoshaphat says, isn't there a prophet that we can inquire of the Lord? This way the Lord will tell us what we can do. And remember, during this time, or in case you don't know, God would speak through prophets. If you wanted something from God, or you wanted to hear from God, guess what you would do? You would ask a prophet, and he would speak on behalf of God to the people. What about today? Let's think about this, right? Today, do we need a mediator today? We don't need an earthly mediator, right? We have the amazing God mediator, and that's and he's Jesus Christ. First Timothy chapter two verse five, Paul reminds the church. It's a, he says there that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We don't need to go to another person. When we need God, we don't go to another person. We go to Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus Christ that we have access to God the Father. And remember this, whenever you are faced with a trial, with a tragedy, with a dilemma, with a whatever it may be, a giant, a storm, whatever the case may be, we can go to God through Jesus Christ. And what's amazing about this is that it tells us in Hebrews 4.16, it says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is what's so amazing about God. See, the Lord is reminding us, whenever you are hit with a trial, whenever you are hit with an issue, whenever the giant comes, whenever the storm comes, you come to God with confidence. You come to the throne of grace. See, Jesus wants us going to Him. And He says, you come boldly. In other words, you come with confidence. You believe in Me. You come to Me. And when you come to Me filled with faith, understanding who I am, then guess what? You're going to obtain mercy and you're going to find grace to help in time of need. See, you and I can take great comfort in this. See, whenever anything happens to you, the first person we should go to is God. Many times we'll go to our parents, we'll go to our kids, we'll go to our co-workers, we'll go to our friends, we'll go to our pastors. We go to other individuals instead of going to God. And the Lord is saying, you know what? I'm the mediator. I'm here to help you. Come with confidence to me. Don't worry about it. I'm willing. If you believe in me, I'm willing to help out. And believe me, it may not be in your timing, but I will help you. And this is the confidence that we have. That He will always be there for us. And we know one thing is that He turns all things together for good, right? No matter what we're faced with, He will turn all things together for good. And so, as we go back to the events, one of the servants says, Elisha's here. You know what? He's in this area. And he was the one that poured on the hands of Elijah, meaning that 
He was Elijah's servant. And so verse 12 goes ahead and shares with us that, So Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. So they go looking for Elisha. Okay, because Elijah is now in heaven. And so they go to the prophet Elisha, who was the one that was mentioned here by the servant. And King Jehoshaphat says, you know what, I know Elisha. And I know that the Lord is with him. And so all of them go to him, the, the three kings. And then verse 13 says, Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. What I love about this, Elisha immediately calls out King Jehoram. He says, you know what? Why are you coming to me? You want nothing to do with me. Why don't you go to the prophets of your father and your mother? You know, those are the ones that you still use, right? You want nothing to do with me? See, Elijah was saying, wait up. Your heart is far from God, from the God that I serve. And so why are you going to the God that, that I serve instead of going to your prophets, the other false gods? And so how does Jehoram respond? He says, you know what? The Lord called us three kings. He called us. In other words, he seems to be acknowledging the sovereignty of God. And so how does Elisha respond to that? I love his response because in verse 14 it says this, And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. Let's think about this. Elisha is saying, If it were not for king Jehoshaphat, I would not look at you nor see you. It sounds pretty harsh from Elisha, doesn't it? But I want to remind you of one thing. Elisha was speaking truth here. Because when you look at Proverbs 15.29, it says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. Think about that. The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. See, Jehoshaphat was truly a man of God. And being a man of God, being a man that serves the Lord, that worships the Lord, God hears His prayers. Many times we'll say, but doesn't God hear the prayers of, of others? You know what? He hears them, but does He respond to them? See, the Word of God tells us that if there is inequity, why God doesn't hear us. He, you know what? He hears them, but He doesn't respond to them. He's not going to follow through. But see, I take comfort in this. Because if you are a child of God, we serve a God that sees us and hears us. See, this is what's so amazing to me is that, you know what? We serve a God that hears you, that whenever you are in a problem, just like Jehoshaphat, and you know what? He was in a problem. God heard and God saw. See, the God that we serve, as I mentioned to you, 
He is also called El Roy. The God who sees. El means God. Roy means sees. He is the God who sees. See, if you're ever in a situation, if we belong to God, when you cry out, He will see you and He hears you. And this is why He tells us in Hebrews 4.16 that we can go to Him with confidence. See, this is why whenever I have a problem, I go to God. Because I know that He's hearing me. I know that He's seeing me. And to know that I am that special to God, that when I cry out, He's there for me. And He's there for all of us that have a relationship with Him, that have asked God into our hearts, that have surrendered our lives to Him. See, over and over and over again, throughout the Bible, we see God always coming to the rescue of His children. And He will come to the rescue of us. I remember, remember the story of, or the event when, uh, when Jesus was, was walking on water? And remember the boats, the, the disciples were in the boat? Do you remember the disciples that were in the boat? And, and all of a sudden there was this storm that came and they were in the middle of the sea and, and it was a heavy, heavy storm. And so as Jesus was away praying, but He sees this going on, He begins to come towards them. And he's walking on water. And as the disciples see him, they, they're alarmed, right? And they're, they're thinking that Jesus is a ghost. And so immediately, Jesus comes to them. And he tells them, Be of good cheer. It is I, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I want you to know, and the reason I share this event with you is only to remind you that whenever you cry out to the Lord, He is there instantaneously. He is there to help. He is there to answer you whenever you are faced with a problem. And as the disciples, they were also rebuked because He reminded them of one thing. Because when... They got in the boat, that's when the, the storm stopped. And do you remember what he told them? He says, you know, you have little faith, why do you doubt? Why do we doubt? See, and as you know, we've been, you know, there's various trials that we've been going through. Not only myself, but many of you. And see, God is reminding us to trust in Him no matter what. He's reminding us that, you know what, that don't doubt me. Know that I'm there with you. Know that I'm for you. And then what happens in verse 15? It says, but this is Elisha responding, but you bring me a musician. And then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. Imagine that. The hand of the Lord came upon him. Elijah requested a musician. And as soon as a musician began to play, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. Is this amazing or what? Let me bring this back so that we understand how amazing this is. 
Do you remember the time when David played the harp? And King Saul had an evil spirit that was dis- a distressing spirit that would just, you know what, it just was, was just continually conflicting Saul. He was oppressed. And all of a sudden, when David began to play the harp, something supernatural would happen. That the distressing spirit would depart from King Saul. That's not the only time that victory is experienced because the Bible shows us other accounts. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 22, it tells us that when the worshipers began to sing when Jehoshaphat was faced with an enemy, three nations that came against him, when they began to sing and praise the Lord, that immediately when that happened, the Lord set an ambush against the enemy. So what does this tell us about worship and praise? What does this tell us about when we sing and praise the Lord? The enemy doesn't like it. The enemy flees when we sing to the Lord. When our hearts are filled with psalms and spiritual songs. Why do you think we worship before service? What happened here with Elisha? When the musician began to play, then the word of the Lord came to Elisha. See, when we sing worship here before services, the word of the Lord comes to us. And that's what's so amazing about all of this. See, there is a supernatural event that takes place when worship is being played. God will speak and the enemy will flee. That's how simple it is. Think about that, right? God will speak and the enemy will flee when worship takes place. For many of us, some of us are oppressed by the enemy, right? There's these voices that we hear. I suggest to you, turn on worship music. Allow the the worship of God to be in your hearts and in your minds. You sing worship. Just don't allow it to play, but you also join in on it and you'll see how the worship of God, you know what, it just moves the enemy. The enemy will flee. As we keep moving on, verse 16 goes on to say, And he said, Thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet the valley shall be filled with water, so that your cattle and your animals may drink. And then he goes on to say, And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. When Elisha spoke the word of the Lord for the Israelites, Judah, and for the Edomites, he says, make ditches in the valley. And then he goes on to say that, I will fill the ditches with water so that you can drink. No rain, no wind will blow water into the ditches, for the ditches will come from me. I mean, for the water will come from me. And then God says that He will deliver the Moabites. I want to share with you what we have here. We have ditches of faith here. What you have here is God is asking them to move in faith. 
Think about this. And I want you to meditate on this before I start explaining this. God has asked you to make ditches of faith in the past. He has asked you to make ditches of faith. Did we ever listen to them? Did we ever, I'm sure, I should say, did we ever listen to God to make these ditches? Some of us say, you know what, why am I going to make a ditch? Think about the Israelites. They're saying, why am I going to dig holes? This is silly, right? Why am I going to dig holes? How am I We're asking you to help us to conquer the enemy. And you're asking me to dig a hole. See, God always has a way of testing our faith. God uses just unconventional ways of testing our faith. He asks us to do different things, things that aren't normal, just to think that, just to see if we're following what He's instructing us to do. See, God speaks to us, and many times He'll ask you to do different things, and then you're like, that's weird, I don't want to do that. I remember the, when we first uh, started the ministry. I remember the Lord asking me one thing. He says, you know what? I want you to talk to the preacher that's up there teaching. And when you talk to that preacher, I want you to ask him for help. Because I was looking for a location for us to start our, Friday night, uh, to start our Bible studies. We were going to start on Friday nights. And I'm thinking to myself, I never met this man. And yet you're telling me this man is the one that's going to help me? And that's what he was telling me. And throughout the service, I'm seeing this, this preacher up there. This, and he's teaching and he's giving us the word. And the only thing, I'm, I'm conversing with God and God is saying, He's going to help you. And I'm like, God, I don't even know him. And for me to go up to him and say that you told me that he's going to help me to find a place. Because every door was closing. And I was discouraged. And I was thinking to myself, this is weird. And I said, okay, Lord, you're asking me to do it, so I'm going to do it. So I went and I asked him. And he said, you guys could use our church free of charge. That's the Lord. When he asked us to go into a building to start our Sunday services, it was the same way. He sent me to a church there on Azusa. And he says, go and ask him to help you. Go and ask him. Go and let him know that you want to plant a Calvary Chapel there. And I'm like, I don't know this guy. I said, but if you're asking me to do it, I'm going to do it. And so I asked him, and guess what? He said, sure. See, these are things. God is asking us to do some crazy things that maybe we don't think make sense. But what he's doing is he's testing your faith. Remember Abraham? Remember when God told Abraham, you know what, take your son, the one you love, and sacrifice him on the mountain. And Abraham said, okay, Lord, if that's what you're asking me to do, I'm going to do it. He trusted in the Lord. The Bible tells us that he even believed that if he was going to slay Isaac, God was able to bring him back from the dead. That's the amount of faith that he had. What ditches is God asking us to dig? Think about that. God tests our faith. He uses unconventional ways. Don't ever forget that. There are ways that seem so wrong to us, but yet they are so right. 
But remember what I've shared with you. Take the first step and then God will meet you and give you the second step. See, unless we take steps of faith, we're never going to receive what God has given us. How many things are you missing out on because you never dug that ditch? Think about that. There's things that God wants to do through you. There's amazing things that God wants to bless you with. There's amazing miracles that He wants to do, but yet, we don't take that first step. We don't dig the ditch. Why? Because I think we have a, a small perspective on God. See, because if we really look at God and think that our God is a huge God, a big God that can do great things and awesome things, then we wouldn't have issues taking steps of faith. But because we think of God as being so small and thinking He can't do these things, your words say that He's big, but in your heart you don't think He's that big. Yet God is reminding us today that I am a big God. I'm an awesome God. I'm a God that does great and amazing things. I am able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. That's the God that we serve. Verse 19 goes on to say, Also you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. This is what they were instructed to do after they conquered the Moabites. Verse 20 goes on to say, Now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by way of Edom and the land was filled with water. Imagine that they went and dug the ditches and in the morning when they offered a grain offering when they were worshiping the Lord that all of a sudden water comes down and begins to fill the land. If they didn't take the step to dig the ditch, the water never would have come. And the water came. Verse 21 goes on to say, And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. The Moabites heard the kings are there, so we're going to go. And we're going to stand at that border and we're going to fight because they came to battle us. They went to the, the land of Moab. So they're there ready. So then in verse 22 it says, So they, so I'm sorry, verse 22 says, Then they rose up early in the morning and the sun was shining on the water and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now therefore Moab to take or to the spoil. What they're saying here is that the Moabites, when they rose up in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. And they thought that they were pools of blood. They thought that the, these three nations ended up fighting one another. That they battled one another and because they battled one another, they destroyed each other. In their minds, they said, great, we have the victory. All we have to do now is go down and take their spoils. Remember, that's what was great about victories. They took the spoils. They took all the armor. They took all their possessions. 
And yet, little did they know that it wasn't blood. And so verse 24, so when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them and they entered their land killing the Moabites. Let me remind you, when they went down there, they didn't have their weapons. They just went down there to get the spoils. And so when they came to the camp, Israel rose up, attacked the Moabites, and they killed them. Verse 25 goes on to say, Then they destroyed the cities, and each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it, and they stopped up all the springs of water and cut down all the good trees, but they left the stones of Ker, Haraseth intact. However, the slingers surrounded and attacked it. In other words, they did everything that God asked them to do, with the exception of their Kurt Harasat. They didn't do it there. And then it says, And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. So in other words, there were still survivors. The king had actually survived. And so he says, You know what? I'm not going to defeat Judah. I'm not going to defeat Israel, I see their armies there, but yet I'm going to go to Edom. And when he went to Edom, he couldn't. He couldn't break through. And so then look at what he does in verse 27. Then he took his oldest, his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel, so they departed from him and returned to their own land. You know what this king of the Moabites did? He sacrificed his son to the god Chemosh. Imagine that. He sacrificed his own son. And remember, Israel hated human sacrifice. It was forbidden by God. And yet they saw this man sacrificing his own son to this god. Why was he doing it? He was asking for help from his God. And to Israel, this was disgusting. This was terrible. This was an abomination. They said, you know what? We're out of here. Many translations actually say, as it says there, that there was great indignation against Israel, but other translations say that Israel was filled with such anger that they departed. And that's what I believe happened here. I want to share with you how true what I am telling you is. Did you know that there was an archaeological discovery? And you can look it up in the, in the internet. It's called the Moabite Stone. And this Moabite Stone contains Misha, the king of Moab. He records this battle and he claims that his god Chemosh delivered him from the Israelites. Look it up. This is how amazing this is. Everything that the Bible tells us is true. Israelites didn't kill him, but they sure defeated him. It wasn't his God that delivered him, it was God's grace. That's what did it. So what do we learn from all of this? There's three things. And I'm going to go quickly because we're out of time. Remember this. The first thing that we were taught here is that God hears our cries. Don't ever forget that. God hears your cries. If you belong to God, He is listening. If you belong to God, His eyes and His ears are there for you. 
He loves you. Don't ever forget that. His eyes. The Bible says that we are the apple of his eye. You are the apple of his eye. You know how much he loves you? That he knows every detail about you. Do you know that he counts the hair on your head? And he has them numbered. He just doesn't have a number for them. Every single hair on your head is numbered. That's how much he cares for you. The second thing that we're taught is that God wants us to step out in faith. Remember that God wants you to step out in faith. Don't try to figure God out. Stop trying to figure it out and saying, you know what, this is weird, this is strange, I don't know if I want to do this, you know what, this is so unconventional, this is so weird, this is so silly. If God is asking you to do something, if God has spoken to you, just do it. Even though it may sound silly, even though the enemy is telling your mind, you know what, don't do it. It's dumb. Don't believe him. It's silly. God isn't going to do anything. That's your own belief. That's your own thing that you're thinking up in your mind. Remember, God doesn't move the way we move. Our ways are not His ways. Our thoughts are not His thoughts. And don't ever forget one thing. That God delivers. God delivers. He delivers. Just as we saw in this battle, He delivers. And sometimes we expect Him to do it a certain way, and you know what? He may not do it that way, but remember this, God delivers. I'm going to share this with you. God turns all things together for good. Don't ever forget that. Even when we're going through problems, God will deliver. Even though when there are issues, trials, God delivers. God turns all things together for good. God loves you so much. But we must remember, in order to receive all of this, you've got to be a child of God. You've got to surrender your heart to Him. We heard it with Jehoram, God wanted nothing to do with him. God says, I don't hear you because why? You don't, you're not surrendered to me. You don't worship me. I'm going to give you an opportunity now. Let us close our eyes.